Welcome. You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for Congregations Building Beloved Community. I'm Scott Sherman. And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. We're two freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests. Speak for yourself. Serving the people of God and God's church here in the Bay Area. While supporting each other and you in noticing and responding to the movements of the Spirit in this unique moment we find ourselves in. So, yes, welcome and welcome back again. Today is a really important episode because, you know, it marks us beginning to bring voices in sort of beyond the leadership of Vital Thriving into the work. Um, in the weeks and months to come, we're going to be hearing primarily from people whose uh, writing and witness inform the themes of our work, uh, but they may not be specifically involved in the work itself. That's right, Scott. And I really can't think of a better guest for where we are in this process than Dr. Elizabeth Liebert. Sister Beth is a former professor at San Francisco Theological Seminary and the Graduate School of Theology in Berkeley, a Roman Catholic sister of the holy names of Jesus and Mary, and a celebrated author of several beautiful books on spiritual practice and discernment. I have read her book, The Way of Discernment, Spiritual Practices for Decision-Making, at least four times, have used it as a primary <laughs> resource for discernment committees in every parish I've served, and I'm even taking my vestry and staff through it as our book study for this year. So I am particularly excited about today's conversation. I'm honestly geeking out, kind of. This is like the priestly equivalent of a of a groupie meeting with their fa with their favorite band, right? It really is. I'm really quite thrilled. Well, so Sister Beth is someone I've actually known for for a long time, and uh, both as a colleague and uh, to know as a friend. And I am just really grateful, Sister Beth, for your willingness to be with us today. Welcome. We're delighted to have you with us on our podcast. Well, thank you so much. Scott and Claire, I'm really happy to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Us too. So, Sister Beth, since you might be new to some of our listeners, I wonder if you could share a little bit with us about your focus as an academic and your own spirituality as a Catholic sister. How is it that you came to contemplative practice and spiritual formation as a focus of your life and your work? Well, I'll start with the sister part of that because it's intrinsic to my journey. I was raised Catholic, and my parents wanted us to get a good education, so they put us in a parochial school, and I started grade one, and that's where I met my sisters. First day, first grade. <laughs> I stayed wow. with that school and consequently kept knowing the sisters as I grew older and older, and as I got up in my high school years, I thought, hmm, this is really an interesting group of people. I think I might like to be one. So I pondered that. But the obstacle for me was they teach. I don't want to teach. I don't have any desire to teach. So I thought to myself, well, if you want to be one of these groups, you better decide you're going to like teaching because you're going to be doing it. <laughs> so I did enter the community. And I did end up in a 7th and 8th grade classroom teaching math and science. 
And that was my first, uh, I guess we could say, baptism of fire. <laughs> However, I did manage to get along fine with 7th and 8th graders and actually enjoyed them. But at the same time, this sort of tug was going on. I, I, I wanted to know more about spiritual practices and things like that. So I asked my community, can I, can I get a master's degree in religious studies? And they agreed, so I did. With that background, I was now qualified to at least dabble in undergraduate teaching, which I started doing in religious studies. Well, I found out I liked them, too. But it was also my <laughs> second um, change of, really major change of direction. But with realizing I really liked them and I really wanted to stay at the, at the graduate level or the undergraduate level at least, I knew I needed another degree. Can't, can't stay there with a master's degree. So, uh, and I wanted to do it in biblical studies. I was just fascinated with the Bible. And so while I was doing this teaching, I thought, okay, you've got to get your biblical languages. You're already behind the eight ball here. So I figured out how to get myself tutored in the biblical languages. And just as I was going to start, my door slammed shut. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be so far behind, this is not going to make any sense. So what else can you do? So I searched around, and I ended up at Vanderbilt University, with a whole variety of reasons, in pastoral, well, they called it religion and personality studies. It was psychology and religion and pastoral care and counseling and the whole mix of all those things. But now I'm in an inter or non-denominational seminary and graduate school with a whole bunch of Protestants. So another whiplash. Apparently you like Protestants because you've spent an <laughs> awful lot of time with us over the decades. <laughs> this was the beginning right there. And, um, and so I, I, I did this learning in the context and I began to pay attention to all things Protestant. Um, when I got finished with my degree, I ended up teaching pastoral care and counseling in a Catholic seminary. But my second job was Presbyterian seminary. Here's the Protestants come back and never left. The Presbyterian seminary at the Graduate Theological Union, and the job was teaching spirituality. Now, who even knew what that was? Yeah. The faculty didn't know. Yeah. I had a better idea than they did, but it wasn't systematic at all. So we had to figure it out as we went along. And although I stayed at this Presbyterian seminary for 30 years, the learning didn't stop. Now I'm doing it in the context of the students. Uh, we're trying to, they wanted spiritual practices. And every time I would offer a course with, that had something to do with spiritual practices, it would be full. Hmm. So I'd listen to the students and try and experiment. So we started with a semester-long, two hours once a week course in Lexio Divina. Learned how to do it individually, learned how to do it in a community setting. Added more as we went along. And, you know, as the years went on, we, would had, we had five or six really standard spiritual practices that we would teach, not only for the students' benefit for themselves, so they could take it, into their ministries. Meanwhile, I'm on the doctoral faculty at the Graduate Theological Union. It comes with the territory. So there was a bunch of us 
that were really interested in spirituality. And we began to talk together and we said, oh, maybe we could make a curriculum for doctoral work that would prepare people to teach the, teach the teachers. Mm-hmm. And so we did. And for a, quite a number of years, uh, we had this marvelous curriculum in um, spiritual spirituality for PhD in spirituality. And I like to think that our curriculum did make a huge difference in uh, helping spirituality studies to become a legitimate academic field as well as a formational field. So a big draw for me over the years was that I got to combine the scholarly and the formational. And so one was always feeding the other because I was still always doing this formational level work at the at the ground. Thank so you. that was the journey. Thank you for sharing. Uh, still going so, on, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, no, thank you for that. And, you know, I, I know one of the themes in your work is discernment. And, you know, this project that we're working with, with uh, Episcopalians uh, in the Bay Area, um, it is actually, it's a three-year process of discernment uh, that goes through phases of, you know, discovery, experimentation, and focus. Um, And as somebody who's, you know, we're kind of inviting in from the outside to talk to us about it, could you just... Talk to us about what is discernment? How, how do you define that word? Sure. Uh, let's start with the Latin root. The Latin word is discernere. And it gives us a huge big hint because it means cutting or separating. So if we just start with that root meaning, we can say that discernment is separating out the essential from the dross. Mm. Now, that's a generic word and generic description, and it can be used in a lot of contexts. But as a Christian practice, uh, it refers to the spiritual practice of sifting out the action or the call of God, or you can say that from everything else in which it is embedded, seeing what is really there at the root. I could say it a bit more poetically, if you want. Uh, I could say, for example, searching out the work of the Spirit with the eyes of the heart. Or listening for the Word of God and letting it settle in in the heart. Or Mm -hmm. there's a number of ways you could say that. But I think you get the idea. Since the creative work of God is ongoing and it's pervasive, at least the way I think theologically, I say the action of God can be found embedded at the heart of everything that's in creation. The the immense and the microscopic and everything in between. So discernment is the spiritual practice of learning to sense this pervasive work of God. And once it's once you sense it, to contribute to it, to celebrate it, to join it. Mm-hmm. So that's the meaning of the word, but the number of and variety of approaches can be astounding. And in fact, I have heard myself make this claim that discernment is as varied as the individuals who practice it. <laughs> so that I guess that, you know, when you think about how creative, endlessly creative God is, that shouldn't be a huge surprise. 
I love that you started with the the separating and the meaning of that word, um, because as as many of our listeners might not know the root of discernment, I think a lot of them know the root of religion, like religio, the idea of like binding and being rebound. And I think that counterpoint of like, well, there is the sifting and the sorting and the separating in order that we might be drawn more closely to God, that they're not exclusive. Yeah, that's so powerful. I wonder if you could talk a little about the difference between discernment and decision making. Um, so many of the Episcopal leaders, both clergy and lay who are listening to this are um, very accomplished. They're excellent strategists. They're very good problem solvers. They're quite decisive in their undertakings. And I'm, I'm sure they're quite familiar with uh, decision making and strategies around that, but maybe not so much discernment. Okay, I think we can, I think here's how, a way to start it. First of all, let me say that, that discernment and decision-making do overlap. Yeah. But there is a distinction between the two of them. The first thing I want to say is that discernment is, is bigger than, includes a lot more than decision-making. Decision-making is a moment in which discernment can be particularly powerful. But discernment might be kind of sensing how God is present and moving in, like in my prayer, in um, in the awkward exchange that somebody might have with their neighbor. What's going on there? And um, in the news broadcast that you picked up in the car, in world events, in your Sunday worship service, in the time you spend with your family. Uh, in today's contentious politics, any of those things you can be pondering, what's God doing here? Mm. Um, so now, at least this is true for me, I don't literally hear any a voice that says, okay, Beth, look, here I am. <laughs> we have to learn from our experience what the word and the work and the presence of God looks like, feels like, sounds like, tastes like. So here's where the work, the sort of the combined work of the spiritual masters can be a big help because, you know, they have a wisdom that they've, they've left for us. We can find it and use it. Here's where a text like Matthew, uh, by their fruits you will know them, can really help us. Um, and then if we put that together with the Galatians text, we begin to get a sense of what these fruits actually look like. So, and you know the, the text from Paul as well as I do, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, generosity, self-control. These, when you start seeing these things show up, behind that is the work of the Spirit. So that's where you want to head. So decision-making, now we'll look at the other side of that. We're all familiar with this. We do it all the time. Sometimes... We think about it intentionally, but there's a lot of decisions we make that we just sort of do, and we, you know, they're, they're kind of habitual. But if we're if we're actually working with something important and something more than trivial, we probably do something that has some version of several pieces. So we would probably want to isolate the scope of the decision, and you know, it's not just some sort of vague thing out in front of me. What really am I deciding about? 
we'd want to gather any necessary information that would help us make a smart decision. We'd ponder it. We might consult. We might chat with those that are important to us in this decision, our spouse, whatever. Um, but at some point, uh, we choose. We make a decision, and then we begin to put it into effect. And although a lot of people skip this last piece, a really smart decision maker would also review the decision and then tweak it if necessary. Mm. Now, the actual process may not be that linear at all, and it may happen so quickly that you don't actually notice those pieces, but I think they're usually there in most decisions. So, but discernment can also be present when we're doing decision-making. There's that overlap that I mentioned. But for decision-making to qualify as discernment, it needs, and here's the key thing, it needs to be embedded within the intention to seek out what God is doing and calling. Mm. God's will, God's desire, God's dynamic movement. Uh, you can use a lot of different words there, but we're what we're after is that. So in a certain sense, that becomes the figure and the process becomes the ground. The process becomes the context in which I'm listening for what God is doing. But And it's through the decision-making that we're then doing our prayer and our search and our paying attention and our assessing by the fruits. So what's different then is the context for the intensive paying attention is now the process of decision-making. Well, and you can see why that's helpful, because when you make, when anybody makes a decision, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to go that way, but not that way. Mm-hmm. So if you want to uh, find an important place to be listening for God, it's right there as you're making a decision, because... The decision as you as you move forward is going to affect everything that follows it. So it's not just a straight line, right? Uh, that 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 moving forward, right? It's oh you're, no, you're making adjustments. You're making quite, adjustments as you go along. Quite circular, but but it does follow that a similar pattern, um, although not you know don't think of it exactly in this like marching order here. But, but you still have to figure out what the decision is actually about. Hmm. So that's that's formulating your discernment question, if you can put it in the, that language. But here's something that's different. As you're beginning and all the way through, you are praying for the ability to put God first. Hmm. Now, Ignatius of Loyola had a name for that. He called it indifference. I don't like to use the word because you always have to interpret it because it sounds like don't care. That's not what he meant at all. He said, I care about God more important. God's desire is more important than mine. So as I sense God's call, I'll put mine aside if it doesn't match that. So we pray for that grace, that grace to be free to move. Mm. And we still have to gather information that is important, so that doesn't go away. And But here's the next distinctive. Prayerfully we weigh the alternatives. We don't just think about it. Mm. We do it in the context of prayer. Mm -hmm. And then, here's another distinctive, 
as we begin to sense, oh, there's the decision, it's right out there, we pause. And we say, sort of figuratively speaking, okay, God, I've been doing this work now. Is this, is this it? We pause and we wait. Uh, and we get a sense, yeah, go ahead. Or we might get a sense, nah, I'm not sure that's right. Then we might go back and circle back again and try again. But suppose, yes, you begin to get a sense, yeah, this is really right. I, it feels it feels like this is the way God is calling me as I pray about it. Then you go ahead and finalize it, and you go ahead and implement it. And if you're wise, you look then a little bit later and you say, where are the fruits? What kind of fruits came from this? Because then, looking at those fruits, you know, aha, I did this well, but I need to tweak this little piece over here. Or there was this not very positive thing that came from it. So, uh, and, and then you learn. That's how you get the wisdom over time. So then you make adjustments as necessary. So if you put discernment on top of those things we ordinarily do, you have to add some things. That prayer for indifference, the prayerful weighing, and the pause to let God get a word in before you actually <laughs> move. Yeah. I, I love this, you know, and I, I'm hearing this um, uh, in my sense of life of, you know, personal discernment and, you know, life journey decisions. But the work we're doing with congregations, um, we're, we're engaging in collective discernment. Mm -hmm. um, where do you see the difference between those two or the overlap? Personal versus collective discernment. That's actually a great question. And um, the, the first thing I think I want to say is that the key actors in both personal discernment and collective discernment are God and the discerner. Um, God is the heart of all discernment. So obviously God needs to be present and active and we need to pay attention, whether it's individual discernment or collective discernment. But no individual acts in a vacuum. So the collective, even if I'm doing my own discernment about my own issue, the collective is always still around us. We, we're members of families. We're members of churches. We're members of denominations. I belong to a religious community. You have One has an obligation to bring those voices into the discernment. So we're already pushing the boundary of my discernment to recognize that I'm a member of communities and the best discernment is always in a community context. However, to get to the heart of your question, group discernment is quite a bit more complex. There are multiple players now, not just me and God, or me and God with these other people that, uh, in, with, within which I am working. Now I've got a group of people. Ideally, those discerners already understand personal discernment because they can bring all of that to their group discernment process. Um, but I don't want to say that group 
discernment requires that the individual discerners be skilled at their own individual discernment because that would limit the Holy Spirit. But I will say, the process can go much more fluidly if people know from their own experience what discernment feels like. So some experience in discernment, some understanding about discernment is really, really helpful. Uh, the second thing that I think is crucial in group discernment is that it be guided by a facilitator that's wise in being able to think about group dynamics. Because mm -hmm. now it's not just me. It's, there's a group. So all of the things that go on in group dynamics come right into the discernment, willy-nilly. Mm -hmm. But a, a good facilitator frees everyone to participate fully in listening, individually and together, <clears throat> for the Word of God. And I think it's a really good idea if the group's ordinary leader, for example, a pastor with a church board or a session, isn't the one leading the discernment so that that person can participate as an ordinary member, just like everybody else. We Episcopalians call them the vestry. Yes, uh, right. But it's pretty much. Sorry, the same I work thing. with Presbyterians. It's, so. it's the same. Uh -huh. th yeah, I know. I no, I I I was a Presbyterian, so I regularly call the the vestry the session, and mm -hmm. they look at me strangely. <laughs> and the third thing that, that that differentiates is that group discernment is is usually looking at something that affects. Uh, a whole group, the, the, the structure that the group is a part of. So I'll switch to my Episcopalian terms. The vestry might be making a decision that affects that local church. So now you've got the whole system of the local church and their systems dynamics for the church, and you've got systems dynamics of the vestry to contend with. So it gets complicated and messy. So how do systems change? What forces hold back that change? Um, again, I don't want to limit God's ability to, um, to cut through all that complexity. But the result, and this is my experience working with groups, is group discernment is often lengthy and messy. And mm -hmm. it's just part of the whole process. And if we know that as we head in, we be more patient with it and, and more trusting that something's going on here if we just keep going faithfully and listening carefully. So God can act in a system even while the system is moving. And God can act and show us how to act in the system to keep it moving forward. Hmm. Those would be three things that really distinguish group from individual uh, discernment. Thanks so much. So I like to think that Vital and Thriving is inviting congregations like my own into this great adventure. I wonder if you could share about times when you've seen communities, maybe parishes or maybe some other setting, really engage constructively in a discernment process. What has that looked like and what might we learn from the example of others? I can give, I'll give you two examples. Uh, um, the first one I want to do is my own religious community because we began to think about discernment as the way of coming to common decisions 
30, 40 years ago after Vatican II, and it became something that that kind of sprung up, I, I, I trust as an action of the Spirit. And we began to study different models of discernment and begin to experiment with them. So I remember I worked on one in 1991 where we were really trying to understand how the first Jesuits used discernment to make important decisions. And, and then we modified it so it fit our group. And uh, what began to happen was that we moved away from voting at, at, at multiple levels, not just at the top level, but at multiple levels. And now, these many, many, many years later, it would be very unusual for us to vote on something. We would begin the process of praying and commenting and listening and praying and commenting and listening and begin to let a consensus, I could use that word perhaps, arise out of the praying and listening and and that would that is our way of making decisions at this point. Um, another example, kind of a typical one, this was when I was beginning really seriously to work on the systems part of what I was talking about. And a, a local church approached me because they had to make a decision about their church building. They thought they, they didn't know if they should keep it or move from the building, which was now sort of out of where the population was, and move closer to the center of their town. And so we agreed, and we could. We had a, an afternoon um, on a Sunday, uh, I, I think maybe April, and another one in May, and then we could meet for a whole day in um, early July. So those were our three times that we could be together. Um, so the first time we were together, we spent um, mostly sharing why are you a member of this church? Why do you stay a member of this church? What attracts you and calls you to be a member of this church? And that kind of um, gathering them into into a discerning body. It was mostly uh, the, the members of the, the board. It was a UCC church. It was the board and then some other longtime church leaders. So it was bigger than the board, but it included most of the board. And then I... I um, gave them, I was facilitating, so I gave them some homework to do. The first thing we discovered was that they didn't have any kind of written church history, so we had to gather a little bit. They hadn't done any systematic work about the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They knew about the neighborhood they were pondering leaving. They didn't know anything about the neighborhood they were pondering going to. So so we divided them up into some kind of work groups, and over the next month, they 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 tackled some of these kinds of things. But what we're trying to do, we we knew what the question was, or we knew the starting question. Didn't, and interestingly, it didn't turn out to be the question. Uh, and I'll get to that in a minute. But but we're so now we're starting to gather the information that will help them make a good decision. So. We proceeded on. We had another meeting where we shared all of that, and we were trying to refine it and, and see where it was going to take us. And I think there was some more work that we did in between then and July. 
but we couldn't meet until we had our all-day session in July. Well, then, between May and July, the building sold. They had had, already made at their board level, uh, the decision that if somebody offered to buy the building, they would sell it. And all of a sudden, somebody offered to buy the building, so they sold it. So here we are. Now the question's different. Now we don't have this decision, shall we sell this building? It's gone. So we had to renegotiate a question and rethink everything. And it, and from then on, it just kind of got bigger. Where we ended up at the end of that day that we spent together, we ended up with several next steps they could take. Because the question had changed so dramatically, so they had something for the board members to do, they had something uh, for various committees in the church to do, and then they were going to reassemble, you know, in six months, and, and or, well, they could do whatever they wanted, but and then see where they were and see what the next question was. So we had to figure out, we had to discern, literally, I was trying to set them up to discern what is the next question since mm. the discernment uh, didn't go in a straight line. That's rather typical. Um, you think it's clear and it's gonna, you're just going to walk right down to it. It doesn't work that way. The spirit doesn't work that way and human beings don't work that way. So that's why I say probably messier than you think, probably takes longer than you think. Um, but here's the, here's the important thing, I think. As long as the group is deeply trying to listen, what they're doing continues to deepen their life in God. So therefore, mm. it's fruitful even if they don't go from here to there in a nice straight line with a nice, neat decision. So I'm never distressed if it wanders around as long as the participants are still praying, listening, thinking, um, talking to each other and praying, continuing. They're growing together. That's such a lovely... Um pivot into into my next question, which is really about practice. So you've written so beautifully about so many different forms of prayer and contemplative practice that draw us closer to God. Everything from traditional forms such as the examine and centering prayer to using journaling, visioning, time in nature to expand our awareness and open our hearts. I wonder if you have any favorite practices, uh, either personally or from your research that you'd like to share with us and our listeners. Well, since you mentioned ex ex examine, let me start there. As I have a kind of a, a little um, love-hate relationship with examine. <laughs> Doesn't everybody? <laughs> but I can't love it. <laughs> um, so this was required of us um, as as members of our community. So I met examine as a as a newbie, a sister, and it was before. Vatican II, before the theology began to um, shift. And I internalized it the way it was presented to me, which was you turn a searchlight on yourself and you look at yourself and you're looking for your faults so that you can fix them. 
Okay, well, that's not terribly attractive as a spiritual practice, and I really only did it because I was supposed to. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Quite a bit later, however, I realized, oh, you could reframe this. And I thought, don't look at yourself, look at God. Mm. That made all the difference. I began to look for how God was active in my day. Now, interestingly, that still shows up some of the things that need that I need to change, but the whole context is different. The whole context is, what's God doing, and how can I respond more generously and more, you know, more more if I if I can use this word cleanly and clearly. So that made all the difference. The other change I made was, you know, the exam is often made at night, and I just thought, I'm, just, I'm too tired. I just said, didn't work. So what I started doing was I made my exam at the beginning of the day the next morning, and I look back over yesterday. That works pretty well. It's not quite as close, but since I know I'm going to do that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of ready to do it. And so that becomes the first part of my my morning prayer time, is I do this examine, and then then as I close, and I'm still after you know letting the gratitude for what God is doing arise. That's a really nice way to start the rest of my prayer. So then I say, sort of, uh, some version of, okay, God, what gift do you have hiding in your word today? And then I look at the scriptures for the day, and I usually do Lexio Divina. However, today just. Just you know, it it occurs to me just real quickly. Uh, the breadth of listeners here; those two words, "examine" and "lexio divina," may not be oh exactly clear. Just the very very quickly, just say exactly what that is, so people okay. Are, examine is are not confused. Examine is just the the, the the word is the same is exactly exam e x a m i n e examine, but that's just the Spanish spelling. So it's it's the spiritual practice of examining. And the learning I had was, it's not examining, it's not so helpful to examine me as it is to examine where God is at work. So right. examining is just a three, five, seven minute look back. Mm-hmm. At, and say, what was going on there? What can I learn from that? And then Lexio Divina. Uh-huh. Lexio Divina is the ancient process of pondering scripture and it has a couple of uh, noticeable kind of moves that you make the first thing is you find the text in um, classic lexio you want a short text just a one verse maybe even a phrase from a verse one thing that just sort of says chew on me mm-hmm. then you read it and you put it inside of you. That's the first movement. Just read it, read it, read it. If you were a monk in the old days, that's how you got your scriptures, is you chewed it and you memorized it because you didn't have a book. So you put it inside of you. Then you think about it. You meditate on it. That's the next movement. Can use your head and... For me, when I do that, I'm often doing a little bit of exegesis. I want to know where did this passage come from and how does it fit and so on. But there's lots of ways you can do that, but that's one way I do it. 
But then the next move is you just dwell in it. Just dwell in it. Now, it's sort of what I was going to say when you interrupted me to ask about what is it. I was going to say this morning I started to try to do my Lexio Divina and nothing popped up at all. Just like, uh, flat, nothing. I thought, okay, I guess Lexio isn't my pattern for today. So I just let myself sink into the silence. Mm -hmm. And it was exactly what I was supposed to do. Um, so, and that's the end of Lexio. Also, you just sink into the silence and be present with God. And you can speak to God about this process. That's, that's the other movement. Um, you can do it in some kind of order that it's presented, but that doesn't have to be that order at all. So it's just this sort of cyclical delving down into a text and what God has for you in that text. So I'm glad you asked because I made an assumption that I shouldn't have made. No, that's that's very helpful. You know, I you you um, also write about trauma and spiritual care, and you know we're in this moment in our congregations where you know we're emerging from I mean, tremendous grief disorientation over the last few years of the pandemic what are what are you learning about the the impact of trauma on discernment i think i have to go back and just think about trauma and what it does to one's spiritual self one's spiritual life and I'm going to talk from the perspective of somebody who's accompanying um, because, thank God, I haven't myself had an experience of trauma that really disoriented me spiritually. But people do, and they frequently do. And so, for example, if I am meeting with uh, somebody who suffered um, spousal abuse, Okay. Well, now that is going to dump that person's spiritual life on its head, most likely. Um, so the first thing I want to say is accompanying somebody, standing alongside of them when they're in, in, in or coming out of uh, trauma situations is do it very, very carefully. Pay attention, deep, deep attention to the signals the person is giving you. They may not be able to tolerate anything to do with spirituality and spiritual language. They may not be able to tolerate anything Christian, um, depending on the context of, of it. Uh, it could easily be something of, you know, associated with church or with God or with their father or, uh, yeah, you know. So, Pay attention very, very carefully and take your lead from what the person uh, signals to you. And the second thing to keep in mind, um, if a person is reeling from trauma, it may not be the best moment for discerning anything beyond just how to get safe, stay safe, 
and stabilize um, your life in such a way that you can you can begin to pay attention to um, the spiritual life again. So, but once the safety is ensured, and and then there's a little bit of stability, then some more thinking about discernment makes makes good sense, uh, or could make really good sense. But what I want to point out to you um, is that I didn't say anything about discernment except don't introduce it practically. But it was still going on because mm-hmm. I'm discerning as I approach that person and accompany them all the time. I'm listening, listening, listening. How is God at work here? How does God want me to be present here? How do I help and not hurt as I'm standing with that person? All Those are all discernment questions. The person is also discerning because they have to listen to themselves about what's good for them. Even if it doesn't look religious or spiritual, they are discerning because God doesn't need us to do it in religious language. So discernment is going on anyway. Never mention the word. Now, there are places for discernment farther along the line, especially if there's some important decisions to be made. Um, And, you know, there's some stability there. um, And the person can, you know, look inside without um, that itself being traumatic. Then you you can think about doing some discernment um, or helping the person do some discernment. But it's been going on for a long time before you ever get to that point. Yeah. So that's my first That's my first thought. Wow. You've given us so much to think about. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Sister Beth. It's really been a joy. Thank you. So... Scott, Sister Beth, we've come now to the lightning round, a long-standing tradition here on the Vital and Thriving podcast. It is long-standing indeed. It goes way, way back. Way back. Okay, Sister Beth, you have 20 seconds or less to answer each of these three questions. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Go First, what is the best thing you ever ate at a church potluck? Go. First thing that comes to my mind is homemade lasagna, but it's got to be homemade. And then I, it just popped up right away, right behind it. Also homemade, apple pie. Good choices. Has to be homemade. Who, who says that Protestants and Catholics are far apart? Really? I was just going mean, to say. Really? <laughs> How far apart can ground. we really be? <laughs> We're in full agreement oh. here. Okay, what is your very first memory of a worship service? Go. Hmm. Okay, I see myself sitting in the pew. I'm, I think I might be about three. And up above my head on the wall is one of those 14 things we call Stations of the Cross in the Catholic Church that are pictorial, you know, marching around the, the whole passion. Uh, and I see one up there, and I, I have no idea what else is going on. I don't know anything about the outside of the church. But I'm, up, I'm looking at this enactment of a piece of the passion right up above me, and I'm enthralled by it. Mm-hmm. I think I took 20 seconds, but 
that's my first memory. Thank you. Tell us the name of a church leader or theologian who isn't a white male that you're listening to or learning from right now that we should know more about. Go. Hmm. If I need a church leader who's Catholic, that's that's that stymies me a bit because you know we haven't got a lot of women in church leadership yet. We will. But still a long road to hope. However, I can answer the theologian, and right away comes to my mind is um, Elizabeth Johnson. She is such a fine feminist theologian and has been for years. Uh, so she'd be, and I can name some others if uh, this is, I'm, Exceeding my 20 we'll seconds. Give you, we'll give you an extra 10 seconds. <laughs> okay. Um, Maria Simperman wrote a book called um, Social Analysis, analysis of the 21st Century, and she helps us do the kind of analysis that works nicely with systems. Really fine book. Mm -hmm. And then also um, Kim and Shaw, Intersectional Theology. That's one of the new... Theological themes that I'm really trying to pay attention to and wrestle with. What does it mean to think about how systems intersect to double and triple and quadruple disadvantage for some people? And how do we work with that spiritually? And how do we avoid making it worse? And how do we help make it better? Susan Shaw, thank you. <laughs> Sister Beth, thank you for being our guest today. Uh, we have loved this time with you. Thank you. You're welcome. So Claire, what did you learn from Sister Beth today? When she was talking about discernment um, and this, you know, deep listening, the, uh, attending to how God is moving, I found myself thinking about two conversations I had recently. One was about the natural world, and a friend of mine was commenting on how, uh, in part, we struggle to respond to the urgency of, of climate change and climate crises because we don't even speak the language of the earth. We don't know that these flowers shouldn't be blooming or that these butterflies shouldn't be here or that the bees should be here. Like we just don't even have the language to, to take in the information that the planet's trying to give us. And then similarly, I was talking to a friend recently who's um, coming out of some trauma, who's really struggling with staying in, in their body um, and, and kind of listening to the information their body is giving them. Um, and as she was describing discernment, I was, I was just thinking we've talked so much about God being the chief actor, and it seems like under this umbrella of the word discernment and these practices she's giving us are, I think, the tools and, and the skills to really cultivate the, the language that we need to listen to what God is doing mm -hmm. and, and to understand that God is always already moving. That seems like such a theme in these conversations, but we also need skills and practices to help us actually take that information in. Um, so that just really landed with me quite powerfully today. Yeah. Same, same for me. And I, it's interesting you say that because that, that landed for me. And then I would say, Beyond that, if you're kind of using the notion of, you know, language and practices, uh, is this sense that an essential part of listening to God is listening to one another. Mm -hmm. uh, really, you know, as uh, Pat Kiefert's wonderful phrase of listening the other into free speech, being something that's really woven, woven into the practices 
uh, that sort of enfleshes, embodies, incarnates uh, the Word of God in in a space, in a moment, uh, of in a time of discernment. Uh, it was very interesting to me. I I love, you know, we 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 had a few moments of you know Protestant Catholic uh, fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you notice that you know on the one hand we're we're looking back at you know Saint Ignatius and the examine, but just as readily she is looking at the discernment practices of the Quakers yes. and seeing what they can show us about you know how a group of people. So if you think of Catholics and Episcopalians as you know hierarchical, it's mm-hmm. interesting that the work we're doing is actually we're really leaning in to see the whole people of God uh, and uh, and how essential for real discernment to really hear God, we have to listen to one another. Mm, that's so beautiful. Yeah, and with that posture of, of humility and like genuine curiosity. Yeah, that really yeah. came through. Yeah. Well, I, you know, we're... We're groupies for a reason. Sister Beth has some great things to say. (laughs) Indeed. This episode of the Vital and Thriving podcast was hosted by Claire Dietrich Rana and Scott Sherman. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jeremy Sherman as tribute to Django Reinhardt and the Hot Club of France. This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, the joint initiative between Newbigin House of Studies and the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. Visit vitalthriving.org for more information. Mm-hmm.